Good morning, you guys. Caleb just said we're black and gray, and uh, apparently I got it reversed, or I have like the away jersey on, and he's got the home thing. So uh, I want to tell you guys, last this whole, um, this 12 days of different that you guys are doing is impacting hundreds of people on all of our campuses, not just yours. Uh, as Caleb, I'm the lead pastor of our Irvine campus, and uh, all of us are led by Kenton Bishore, who's a senior pastor of all four campuses in Orange County. And I was talking to Kenton last night, and he goes, did you see what Caleb's doing? And I go, yeah, it was awesome. You know, and he and I were sharing stories about how we did it this week, and we were trying it. And for me, I bought the coffee for the guy behind me, and he just goes, thanks, and received it, and that was it. Like, it just sort of, generosity stopped with that guy. <laughs> But Kenton goes, no, he goes, it was amazing. I tried it. And he goes, I'm at the coffee shop, and I bought the guy behind me. And then he actually orders three drinks because it was a family thing or something. But the guy, then he bought the coffee for the guy behind And he goes, it was awesome because, like, just this generosity thing just busted out in the coffee shop. And he goes, I didn't know how long it went. He ended up leaving and stuff. So it's amazing to see. Uh, so thank you for leading us in that. And I'm so excited to be here with you guys today. Uh, I got a question as we get started. Have any of you uh, ever participated in, be a part of a moment, maybe you caused the moment, where you said something that just caused the whole room to just, <gasps> like, stop? Anybody ever create one? Like, the record, you can hear the record scratching, you know what I mean, is, is that kind of thing? We were having dinner at our house. I have four kids, uh, two boys, two girls, and we had another family over with us, and we were having a, a dinner, and my wife... My wife and I, she more, more than I, but is very passionate about trying to get like family devotions in around the table. And with four kids under 10, it's a challenge, right? So that's always an, an exciting thing. So this family's over and she's fighting for devotions. We're going to, God, we're going to study God's, we're going to pray together. And it's like, you know, this family has three kids, so there's seven kids. We're way outnumbered. And it, uh, so she goes, you know, she's trying to lead them in this moment of confession, and talking about sin. And so they're like, huh? And she goes, well, it's like when you do bad stuff. Did everybody do something bad today? And like, who's going to come clean with that at a dinner? <laughs> really? Like, this is how we're going to lean in at dinner. And she goes, okay, well, I'll start. She goes, so today, like, mommy said something that I shouldn't have said. And they're like, what'd you say? You know, and all that kind of stuff. She's like, no, it wasn't that. It was like, and so uh, my second son, he goes, like, F, just says it. Just charges into it. F, just insert F-bomb right here. And it was like... <laughs> And then we all sort of busted out laughing, because what else are you going to do? He's like six, and you're like, son, we're going to have to talk. Like, we're going to figure this one out later. But have you ever been part of one of those moments? Like, it just happens. And as, as we're sort of walking towards Christmas, uh, I'm so excited, because the passage I'm going to share with you today, some of you are going to think, you know, it's Luke 2, it's the Christmas story, and you're going to go, oh, Kyle, you're ruining it. Like, we're supposed to read this next week. And it's like, no, 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 no. Because I think what you're going to see today is... Contextually, when Luke wrote this, it is like a record-scratching gasp that would have happened in the entire world at that moment. It is not something that's nice and easy and predictable like we believe it to be today. It is something startling and powerful. And I believe today that God is inviting all of us. Maybe you're here for the first time and you're sort of exploring this whole church and Jesus and Christmas and God thing. Maybe you've been following Jesus a long time. But I believe today there is an invitation to see this story in a radical new way that will let us walk into Christmas with a sense of awe and wonder and rest that God originally designed for us. So let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for who you are, that you are relentless in your love and your pursuit of every single one of us. And I believe um, that, God, none of us is here by accident this morning. 
some of us may even think that. But Father, I believe that you're already speaking. You are already at work. And so continue um, to speak to us, to lead us, to guide us, to help us receive from you exactly what you want for us as we walk through our day and as we walk towards this season of Christmas. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can take out your Bible. As uh, Caleb mentioned, we're, we're still walking through the, uh, the Outsider's Guide to Christmas, just journeying through Luke. And as I mentioned, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. So you can grab your outline or your Bible. I'll put it up on the screen for you too. Uh, if you want that, but let's just start at the beginning of Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Like just, you can hear the music start playing. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in the manger because there was no guest room available for them. You could almost hear, right, Linus reading it in the Charlie Brown Christmas. You know what I mean? With his little lisp. Or see the Christmas cards coming in with a little nativity scene and everybody sort of standing around this child and cows smiling in the background like, hey, I made the card. Um, but here's the deal. Luke is not, is not writing it in that kind of... What he wants you to know, and it's why it starts the way it does in verse 1, is he's saying, I'm telling you the truth. This really happened. And so that whole first census in, in Quirinius, the governor of Syria, which we go, okay, that's nice. What he's saying is, hey, this was only about 60 years ago. And so he's go, it'd be like me talking about Elvis or like Martin Luther King Jr. Like nobody's going to go, huh? That seems not Like you probably know people. Like my parents went and saw Elvis. You know, we know people that walked with Martin Luther King. Like it happened. Nobody's questioning whether this happened or not. And so Luke is going, hey, this is true. This really happened. This really took place. And at the time, you got to understand, this story for them was oppressive. Because this whole, why would you take a census? What does a census do? Counts people. Why would you count people? To tax them. And here's the deal. It wasn't like they were going to go from 8% to 9 which we would come unglued in Orange County if that were true. They were going from like 70% to like 80%. So he's taking the census and this guy as governor and he's saying, hey, do you guys remember that? Remember that when that took place in your life? Remember the stories that got told? Remember how oppressive the world was at that time? Remember how broken? Remember how you were barely struggling to make it and there was this whole empire that was getting wealthy off of you? Do you remember that? That's what Luke is referring to in this case. And it's powerful because this is important truth for them. Why is it important truth? Because he's acknowledging the brokenness and the darkness of the world. And it's what he wants us to remember. He wants us to remember. And it, it's easy for us to see. I mean, we almost become just numb to it because the headlines and the news and life you see, there's constantly, there's violence and there's racism. And there's judgment. There's oppression everywhere. There's sadness. There's loss. And we start to think that through time, from that day, perhaps even to today, like things are getting better. And in many ways, they are. You look at medicine, you look at technology, and you go, wow, like look where the world is today compared to then. But just because it's better, are we really better off? It hasn't eliminated the sense of fear that we experience. 
We still experience the pain of loss and grief. We still have confusing questions about who God is and who the world is and what good and evil really look like, even though it looks different in today's world. And so Luke is saying this is true. And he's going, it's not just an out there kind of truth, it's an in here kind of truth. Because the source of darkness and brokenness isn't an out there world, it's actually in every single one of us. And it's not your fault, right? We're all born into it. I mean, it goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, right, where God's original design and intent was just to live in beauty and relationship with everyone and everything. And then all of a sudden, man says, no, I don't believe that God is good and loving and kind. I believe that he's withholding. And so I'm going to go take what I deserve. And so we're all born into that. We're all born into that pride thing, trying to figure it out trying to manage our own life, trying to even manage the brokenness and the darkness that exists in the world. And we see it from the earliest stages in our kids, right? I don't know about you. I didn't have to teach my kids how to lie. Did you? I mean, did you give them like private sin lessons or something on the side? Like my kids just did it. They know, and they started, they, they would hide when they knew they did something wrong. From the time they were kids, they hide and they lie about it and they're, they're afraid. Why? Because we're the source of the brokenness and darkness in this world, and we see it. And Luke is saying, I know that you don't need a nice, sweet story at Christmas. What we need is a powerful truth that changes everything, that changes the brokenness and darkness in the world, that changes our own lives and our own hearts and our own desires. And so he starts this just going, remember this is true. Remember this is real. Remember that this really happened. Because that's truth that brings transformation. And so I just want to ask you before we continue, what are you looking for this Christmas? What do you believe to be true about this story? And where are you going to find that? I mean, as we head towards the next two weeks of our life, we see the world and the pace and the speed. But where's the sense of desperation in your life? Where's the sense of loss? What are you looking for? Is there just a relationship that's been blown apart? Are you looking for God to provide and rescue? Are you looking for something or someone to be healed in your life? And where are you going to find that? It's not a nice, sweet story that's going to do that. And so Luke is saying, this is a powerful truth that can bring the kind of hope and transformation that they were looking for in that day and that we are still in search of today. So he continues in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. He says, There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them what angels always say, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now we read that and everybody, you kind of nod and you go, I get it. I've heard this story a lot. You know, even the world tells this story at this time of year. And those are titles and names that we just assume go with this baby Jesus in a manger and Joseph and Mary. And that's what we associate with Jesus. Yeah, the Prince of Peace, 
the Son of God, Savior and, and Lord. I get it. That's what they declared. But those are not titles that in that day the people would have assumed went with a baby in a manger. So a little history lesson. Let's just take a step back and remember the context in which all of this occurred and when Luke is writing this. Julius Caesar was killed in 44 BC. Remember that? Brutus, Cassius, anyone? Et tu, Brute, remember that whole thing? You saw a movie about it? Richard Burton, some of us. So that launches them into this 14 years of civil war. And so Rome is at at war with itself. There's the assassins of Julius and the uprising of the new people trying to hold on to the empire. And this is when uh, his son, Caesar Augustus, eventually calms that 14 years and he takes over the throne. And so Caesar Augustus, who is mentioned in this Luke 2 passage then, is the Roman emperor at the time. And he takes over, and because in that 14 years, he brought not just peace to Rome, but really he brought the first peace that Rome had seen in over 100 years. Guess what they called him? The Prince of Peace. That was a title that he assumed from himself from very early on in his reign. He was the Prince of Peace. And then one of these times in the midst of that journey, very early on, when they were at war, there was a comet, a meteor that went through the sky. And everybody thought, and and he announced, he goes, that must be my father, Julius. He must be a god. And so therefore, I must be a son of God. And so those were titles that from very early in his reign, he was the prince of peace. He was the son of God, Julius Caesar. And so one of the ways you'd spread that kind of propaganda at the time, they didn't have Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. So what they would do is they would print coins. They would print money. And so here's a couple examples of Roman coins in that day. So there's a wonderful picture, right, of Caesar Augustus. And on the back, what's that word? Pax, which means peace. He's saying, I lo- here I am, Prince of Peace. The next one, here's another one that happened at the same time. That represents the meteor, Julius Caesar. And all those, basically, he's saying, I am the son of God. That's the way he was spreading the titles and the power of who he was through the world at that time. Prince of Peace, son of God. And so not only did he bring unity to this empire, he was the unifier, but he spread it too. And so he grew the kingdom. This is what it was when he started, and this is what it was by the time he was in power. Everything that the known world had seen at that time was under the control of Caesar Augustus. And because he unified, because he was powerful, people used to call him, there was declarations and all kinds of scrolls and writings, they called him the Soter of the world, which means Savior. Prince of Peace, Son of God, the Savior of the world. And then he was the ruler over everything. He was Lord of this empire. There were statues that looked like this scattered all over, right? Looking very imperial and powerful. And then you see the little baby down there. You know what that represented? You. It represented the rest of the world. So you see sort of the posture that he viewed and believed the world in. This is the oppression that they lived under in that day. This is what the world looked like. And heralds, when they would come in, they'd spread coins. The other way that they would propagate the, the kingdom is by spreading what they would call euangelion, which is good news. And so whenever Caesar had a new baby, they would send heralds out through that entire kingdom, and they'd walk into cities going, good news, Caesar has a new baby. Good news, we've taken over a new city. Good news, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the Savior, the Lord of the world has unified, led another region. In the... That's what they would do. They would send heralds around. 
And so you see the kingdom that reflected this just based in that posture of the statue. This was a kingdom that was built on what? Fear and oppression and prejudice and class and race. They taxed over 70%. They took everything and gave it to the rich and the poor stayed poor and incredibly impressed. It was about position and power. That was the world in which this is written. And so in 60 AD, when the king is at its highest, and that's what's taking place, Luke comes along and he writes this. And Luke announces what? Good news of great joy for who? All people. And they would have gone, the record would have scratched. Did he just say that? And not only that, he takes and ascribes these titles that they would have given to this guy for years, everything they would have known. And who does he assign them to? A baby in a manger. And he says, here is the prince of peace on whom God's favor rests. And what's he saying? He's saying, finally, there's a way to be at peace with our Heavenly Father through this baby. God came, showed up, and made peace. A way to break through the darkness and the brokenness and the evil that we're just born into. Peace can be had with God because of this baby. He's the Son of God. He's fully God, and yet He's fully human. He's wrapping himself within the boundaries of humanity as an infant and placing himself in the hands of teenagers. The Son of God. The Savior of the world. And it, here's a, if Jesus came to save the world, well then, and break the power of sin and death, then why isn't it gone? Because if he would have come and destroyed sin and death, and brokenness, he would have had to destroy you, and he would have had to destroy me, because it's in all of us. And so when he comes to save, when you look at the beauty and the gentleness of God, he says, I'm going to send you a savior, but here's what I'm going to do. I am not going to destroy you. I'm going to send it a savior that will overcome the power of sin, and death, and brokenness in this world. But in its grace, he will give you a way to be in relationship with me that will not overwhelm you. It will not overpower you. It is something that you can even choose. The Savior. And you look at him as the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ. You look at what it means for Jesus to be a Lord. How he shows up as a baby. How he shows up fully dependent. How he shows up, it's not a, he's not a powerful guy who's overwhelming people with reminding them of position. He steps into the lowliest possible place any human being in that day or today could ever imagine. That's the kind of Lord that he shows up. You can almost hear the record scratch, the gasps, the startledness of the people in that day. As Luke grabs these things and he says, here. It's for all people. Good news of great joy. The Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lord has come. And it's not just these titles, but we see that even the kingdoms are in opposition to one another. And we've talked about this in past series here, I know. 
right? And you look at the kingdom of Rome and what it put on display, right? Oppression and fear and violence and swords and blood and death. And you look at the kingdom of God and what it puts on display. And one of the most beautiful passages to represent this is in Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 3. This represents this king and this kingdom that we follow. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You look at the values of the kingdom that Jesus came to put on display and establish and preach and then live out through his kingdom. The first one, humility, we talked about it. And it's not just the circumstances of his birth. You look at the way he lived his life and every day it was about what? Other people constantly serving. This is a man who there's no great treaty that he wrote. to. He never had a home. He never had a place of his own. He never had any of those things. He was always dependent on and valuing and living for the sake of others. And that's what he put on display. Surrender. Everything he gave up, right? It says he was fully God. He turned loose of all of that. The power, the position, the title, all of that. And he embraced the limitations being fully human and a human being. And think about how startling that is. Think about what little sort of power or control that we get in our everyday lives today, the things that God blesses us with, whether it's the job and the position or the finances or the house or the possessions or the relationships or the wisdom or any of those things that we have. And think about taking all of them and moving through life with the posture of, I have to use all that I am and all that I've been given every moment of every day to the advantage of other people. Everything I have and everything I am isn't for me. It's for others. That's what he did in surrendering all of that and ultimately sacrificed to obedience, to death on a cross. Those are the values of the kingdom and the king of Jesus. And so why would Luke use similar language in the titles and in the messaging of this announcing this new king and this new kingdom? Because people in that day, just like today, would be tempted to think that they could worship both. And if he would have used different titles or different names or different descriptions, they would have thought, oh, this must be something like, it's Caesar and. And he's saying, no, 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 no. It's Caesar or Jesus. It's the Roman kingdom or the kingdom of God. You choose. You choose. Two kings, two kingdoms, we get to choose. He undermines the civil religion of his day to put on display this new thing that God was doing, that he had promised for so long, and doing it in a radically different way than anybody at the time could have ever imagined. And I think today, part of the challenge is we move through life, and nobody in this room is like living for the Roman Empire. 
You know, nobody's announcing, Caesar is Lord, you know. I mean, you mention his name when you order a salad, and that's about it, <laughs> right? But here's the thing is, is there's all these other sort of little Caesars in our life that, that subtly start to erode uh, our commitment and our ability to fully live out the kingdom and follow the king that Luke is inviting us to follow. You see some of them, the first one, materialism. I love what Caleb said earlier about, for us in Orange County, one of the most challenging things, right, is, is materialism. And what's the difference, you know, between spending versus giving? Materialism is this lie that if I have enough, I'll be enough. And it may not even be enough. It may just be, you know, how far away are you from enough? One thing. Whatever that one thing is. Well, if only I had mm, that job, that promotion, that house, that car, that relationship, that kid instead of my kid. You know, I mean, whatever it might be, (laughs) we're just one thing away. And that's just a lie. Materialism starts to erode us. And the only antidote is generosity. The only antidote is to see that everything we have isn't ours. And it's to be used for the advantage of other people. Pleasure, one of the most challenging ones. Whatever it looks like, pleasure is this lie that if I feel good, well, therefore I must be good. Happiness is the ultimate goal, and it's just not true. It's a lie that we buy. And pleasure starts to erode because pleasure is constantly demanding more and more and delivering less and less. And so whether it's things that we overindulge in, whether it's fantasy or pornography or eating or spending in the material, whatever it might be, we just start wading into these things and it just becomes deeper and deeper and pretty soon we can't even see the surface and we're drowning in pleasure. And we don't even know how we ended up there. Relativism, where we, just like the garden, just like Adam and Eve, just like that first sin, we think that, well, we get to decide what's true. We get to decide what's right. We get to decide what's real. We start to embrace whatever we want to sort of validate how we want to live our journeys. Individualism. I don't need anybody. Just me. And I think one of the greatest lies is, is we buy today is, I don't need anybody, just, just me and Jesus. And it's like, guys, that's eroding why God created the beauty of the church. Nobody makes it alone. And it's the gift of community. It's why we're so passionate about rooted and about life groups and about serving together. That's how we become who God created us to be. Our redemption is Jesus and one another. But this individualism starts to erode that truth in our soul. And finally, religion. This is one that Satan can hook me with quickly just because of my upbringing. I start to think that I have to be good enough on my own. Because if I perform well, if I do everything well enough, then God loves me. Then he blesses me. It's like this if-then kind of thing. So if I check enough boxes, if I pray hard enough, if I beat myself up enough or feel enough guilt if I do something wrong, if I give enough, if I show up at church enough. But the problem is, what's enough? And who gets to decide that? It's not about that. It's about listening to Jesus and following and serving this king. And every day, receiving from him what he wants me to receive. And responding to him in every conversation and in every moment about using all of that for the sake of this kingdom that he's invited me into. And so this morning, as we sit um, 
walking towards Christmas. What's sort of the gasp in your soul this morning? How is the Holy Spirit sort of talking to you? How is God speaking to you this morning as your father? Where are you sort of like, in your own life? Where do you see him inviting you into something so profound and so much more freeing and so much more beautiful than this kingdom of power and position and pleasure that we've been serving? Christmas is a rebellion against all the values of this world that are constantly inviting us and eroding our souls. Christmas is a rebellion. Jesus came, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God our Savior and Lord. And it's interesting that, that Paul, in writing a letter to the Christians in Rome later on, he says, listen, in 10.9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he's reminding them of what Luke had said. He's saying, hey, is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? Because there's only one. And you get to choose. And we have to choose every day. Every day. Because we forget. And one of the things that Jesus did in his graciousness, the Bible is constantly about acting out our faith. That's most of what the Old Testament is. And Jesus did that for us when he gave us the gift of communion. And so this morning, as a community, we get to receive that gift. To remember and declare with our heart and life that Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus gathered his disciples together and he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, you're forgetful people and so I want you to do this to remember. And he grabbed some bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And what he was saying is, this is Christmas. I came. I am real. Look it, I'm right here in front of you. This is a true story that Luke affirms. And he's saying, I had all the limitations of a human being. I was tempted. I have felt the feelings and the emotion and the pain and the grief and the sadness that you have felt. And I gave my body for you. The Prince of Peace. To create peace with God. The Son of God, fully human. And then he took a cup that represented his blood. The sacrifice that he was going to make for all of our brokenness. For all of our sin, for everything that separates us from God. And he said, this is me as your savior, because you can't save yourself. And so you drink this, and you remember what I did, that I paid your price, your judgment. That I overcame the power of sin and death, so that you could receive and have life and relationship with my father. Prince of Peace. Son of God, Savior, Lord. Christmas, communion is a powerful declaration that Jesus is Lord. I'm going to pray for us. In a moment, we're going to pass out the cup and the bread, and I want you to take it and just hold it. And I want you just to reflect on what God is saying to you today. And maybe just confess the little Caesar or Caesars in your life that you've given your your life to. Just confess those and announce once again that Jesus is Lord and that you want to receive the freedom and the joy and the kingdom and participate in that kingdom in this world in a powerful way and hold it and reflect on that and then I'll come back and we'll all take it together.
Let me pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for this story that really happened. It's not a fantasy. It's not a fairy tale. It's the gift of you in the flesh and in blood. I believe and pray that you're inviting and speaking to each one of us uniquely this morning. So help us to listen and to courageously respond, to confess, to live honestly with you, and God, to walk in the freedom that you want us to walk in your kingdom. As we celebrate Jesus, 